Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show. I have mouth-watering radio commentary on everything delicious every weekend with the best culinary thinkers and authors and experts highlighted each show. Plus, I cover health and wellness, travel, tech, wine, mixology, and more. And I like to say whether you love to cook or you just love to eat, we should definitely be friends. This show is your destination for truly scrumptious conversation that I hope feeds your soul. And after 17 very blessed and privileged years, and they continue in your radio, I do cover it all from shopping and prep to presentation and cultivating your most delectable dishes. I'm here to bring it all together. So I hope that you'll listen in for ingenious ideas and entertaining conversation on everything from gluten-free to vegetarian options, cooking with your kids and for your kids, the latest products and trends, oh, and wine knowledge galore, because there are no reservations needed here. And if you happen to have missed a show, no worries. You can always tune into my tasty podcasts that are posted on iTunes, listed under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. You can find my daily dish on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I am always serving up seconds at ChefJamie.com. Okay, today's kickoff to the show is for bakers. Well, and non-bakers. Really, it's for anyone who has a sweet tooth and anyone who loves cake. But light, airy, no guilt cake, because it's just too light and lovely to have calories, really. You see, I've decided that the best way to usher in spring is to make an angel food cake. Now, for avid bakers, spare egg whites are really a way of life. After you make pudding or custard or ice cream base, those leftover egg whites can really start to pile up. And you save them, right? Well, you should. Angel food cake to me is something to marvel at. It's a dessert that's airy and light and lean, but it's flavorful enough to stand on its own. And you can serve it naked, or you could serve it with macerated berries, or you could change it up during fig season and make it fall-centric. I mean, there are so many wonderful ways. A dollop of whipped cream, mascarpone whipped cream, maybe a drizzle of ganache. Pull out the Nutella. Make it your way, really. Because Americans have been whipping up angel food cakes since the 1840s. Now, it's categorized as a sponge cake, and it's pillowy soft, right? It should be as light as cotton candy, as far as I'm concerned, and just as tender, too. And its sweetness is sort of tempered, well, at least my recipe is, by a good dose of salt, because I like that sweet salt approach, and it has that wonderful toasty goodness on the exterior because the crust, as you could call it, gets brown and caramelized. And then I like a vanilla bean angel food cake. So I use vanilla paste, as you know, I love, especially the Hey Lala brand. It supports 
women in the Tonga, and I love women love uh, women owned businesses. Um, but with that said, I put a big tablespoon almost of vanilla paste in my beautiful angel food cake, and its scent and its flavor just wafts as you walk the cake to the seat at the table. Now, I think that angel food cake is the sort of cake that's worthy of time in the kitchen. And whether you're sort of stealing a slice late at night for a you know sweet treat or you eat angel food cake for breakfast because you just can't help yourself, it's so like all purpose, don't you think? So recipes for angel food cake always start with egg whites. They're whisked until foamy and light, and then sugar is spooned in a little bit at a time. And the whipping and the sugar sprinkling continues until that billowy meringue holds almost stiff peaks. Now, that foam is a French meringue, and it's the airiest of all the styles, and the work is very easily accomplished by your electric mixer. I think there's something daunting about making an angel food cake to some great cooks. Uh, It is, I believe... Almost foolproof. I mean, with the help of electric, with an electric mixer, uh, you need to know just where to go in between those medium and stiff peaks. But really, the oven does all the work. So let's talk ingredients and let me give you my best chef's tips. Egg whites play an integral role in the structure of an angel food cake. Egg whites are composed of many proteins and they aid in creating the volume in the cake. Now, the whites in most recipes I've ever seen, are accented by the help of cream of tartar, which is an acidic salt that adjusts the pH of the egg whites so that the protein is more soluble. And I can tell you from experience, if you do not use cream of tartar in an angel food cake, it will not reach its maximum volume. Another interesting thing about cream of tartar is that it also decolorizes the pigment in flour. And it gives your final cake that bright white color, which I think is so pretty. And who knew? That's pretty cool, right? That's what I call necessary dinner party conversation. You can now wax poetic about the beauty of cream of tartar and how it decolorizes the pigment in flour. See, you are a culinary genius. Now, as for the flour, the flour in an angel food cake plays an important role in the texture and the structure and the elasticity of the cake. Cake flour is usually what's called for, although you can make an angel food cake with all-purpose flour, but the cake flour is lighter and I like it. Now, you'll need sugar because angel food cake really only has a few ingredients and the sugar functions as a sweetener, as a stabilizer, and as a tenderizer. And here's an important tip when it comes to baking your first, or maybe it's your 31st, or your 131st angel food cake. You must cool the cake upside down. It's really the only way to go because you harness the power of gravity, which stretches the cake rather than compresses the cake, and you get a much lighter, more tender crumb. And that's the beauty of the airy, pillowy, cotton candy structure of an angel food cake, right? Now, you must remember, it is immensely important that you do not use a nonstick pan when making an angel food cake or the cake goes splat, like literally. Nonstick properties don't allow the cake to hold onto the sides of the pan when you turn it upside down. 
And remember, you have to turn it upside down. So a standard angel food cake pan that is not nonstick, which by the way, is a very inexpensive investment, will give you the results that you're looking for. So stick with a standard aluminum tube pan. It's 10 inches across, four inches deep. It has a removable bottom so you can pluck the cake out when it's cool. And you want to wash and dry the pan thoroughly before you use it. It cannot have any residual grease from a previous cake that was left within it um, because you'll have a flop of a cake again. You could use a bunt pan, by the way, but the fluted sides make it really difficult to release the cake. And I love the center tube in a, a, a tube pan or an angel food cake pan. And that tube allows the angel food cake to rise higher. It clings to every side of the pan or every surface area, I should say. Once again, do not grease an angel food cake pan, unlike the other pans you use or the other cake recipes you use. Now, I love the rustic appearance of an angel food cake top, but for a more stunning presentation, you can turn it over and pile like lots of beautiful berries that cascade from the center. That's so spring, isn't it? And when you go to cut it, you want to use a serrated knife to keep the angel food cake from compressing. And whether or not you've made an angel food cake before, I hope you'll try your hand at it. It really is a blissful treat. And I will gladly share my foolproof angel food cake recipe. So please email me, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. See, now I need a piece. I made myself hungry. And please don't touch your dial because there is lots more delicious conversation coming up in your radio. More sweet treats And more cake, in fact, the Australian baker and her new book release, You Won't Want to Miss It, Odette Williams will be here. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and there is lots more fabulous food and wine right after this. entertaining and delicious conversation abounds. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. There is a newly released, absolutely stunning and so full of passion cookbook from a Palestinian writer whose work focuses on the intersection of food and culture, history and politics. And I am so delighted to share it with you. I will tell you, there is so much beauty in revealing a cuisine that is vibrant and exciting, but reminds us of how powerful food is in defining a relationship between people, place, and identity. Her new hit cookbook is entitled The Arabesque Table. 
It is inspiration from the traditional food of the Arab world, where Reem weaves in her historical research and her cultural knowledge. And it is absolutely beautiful. The vibrant, fabulous, vivid photography will inspire you to cook Arab dishes if you haven't before, or to master those that you love or those that you grew up with. It's a compilation of modern Arabic recipes celebrating the evolution of Arab cuisine. And I am so delighted to share these contemporary recipes from the Arab world from the new book entitled The Arabesque Table. The author, Reem Cassis, joins us live. I'm so glad to have you, Reem. Congratulations. What a stunning work of art. Thank you so much, Jamie. Oh. It's an honor for me to be here with well, you. Thank you kindly. Well, well deserved. Um, I, I would love to get to know you better. Um, you grew up in a fair, very food-loving family, did you not? I know my listeners would love to know uh, how your love of food has been inspired. You're right. I did grow up uh, <laughs> between three tables, and those were my mother's and my two grandmothers, and in every one of those kitchens, I felt a sense of love around food and a sense of passion for what they were doing. Mm. With that said, those three tables were very different. My paternal grandmother is from northern Palestine, where the cuisine is similar to Lebanese meze dishes. Mm. Uh, My maternal grandmother is more from the center of the country, where the food is large rice dishes served on massive platters that feed very generous crowds. And my table at home, my mother's table, was in Jerusalem, which was an amalgamation of those two tables, as well as the different experiences we had growing up in a city, traveling throughout our childhood as well. So Mm. I felt a sense of love woven through all these three tables in spite of how different they might have been. Right, but what a wonderful history lesson to be able yeah. to experience those different places, right? Like, I, I really believe food transports us. So the stories and the memories from your grandmothers, both of their tables, and to mm-hmm. your mothers, and then how your table has evolved. What, what does your table with your daughters look like today? It's quite different from the way my childhood tables looked like, and I think in part, that has to do with the fact that we no longer live back home Mm -hmm. and the ingredients I have access to, the cultures that my daughters are exposed to are quite different. Mm -hmm. So it's not unusual for you to find on my table a very rustic, traditional Palestinian dish alongside my oldest daughter's favorite meal, which is sushi. So you see a mismatch (laughs) of things. (laughs) I love it. Both within my pantry, in my fridge, on our table. And that was the initial inspiration, actually, for the book that we're discussing today. It was this attempt to capture this cross-cultural table, if you will. Of course. But when I started working on it, I realized if I want that proverbial table to stand on firm legs, then I really have to dig into the history and understand this entire process of evolution. Yes. And so with that said, talk about, if you would, share with us, enlighten us to the history of Arab cuisine. It's a vast and deep history, Jamie. So if you go back, the very first recipes on record ever are stone tablets from Mesopotamia, Mm. uh, which is present-day Iraq. There's a 4th century Roman cookbook, but it's a period of silence after that until the Middle Ages, at which point Arabs are the only people writing cookbooks. 
And in my book, I trace our food and our history back to the Middle Ages to those original cookbooks. And you start to see just how influential food is, but also how influential Arab food has been on the cuisine of the entire world. Yes. And that was in large part because of how expansive the empire was at its height. It reached everywhere from Western Europe to China. And, you know, we can get into specific examples, but you see just how far the cuisine traveled and particularly ingredients. I'm not just talking about dishes and techniques. I'm talking about things like tomatoes, which didn't even feature in Arab cuisine in those books I'm referencing. Tomatoes didn't make their way to our part of the world until the 19th century. So once you dig far back, you see things from a very different perspective. Of course. I think that's fascinating to to go back and look and see the influence. And then I think what is so brilliant today, you talk about ingredients, is that those flavors have infiltrated the common pantry, right? And so Mm -hmm. we know that in, you know, a traditional American dish, you can use za'atar to elevate the flavor uh, above the beauty of a lemon, right? So those ingredients that you use that I see highlighted, I've read the book cover to cover, it's beautiful, uh, in the arabesque table, I go to my spice cabinet or my pantry and I think, oh, I I have to make bulgur, right? I'm missing that texture, that flavor. Um, Can we talk Mm -hmm. ingredients for a minute? I'll tell you, I I love the ingredient listing in the beginning of the book because it really highlights the staples that that are your go-tos. So Mm za'atar, tahini, bulgur, and sumac. Those are my top four. Hmm, Interesting. Yes. So za'atar is, let's start with that because this is one that often has confusion around it. Za'atar is a plant native to the Levant region, which is Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine. Mm -hmm. And it's from the oregano family. But the confusion results because people think it's just the condiment that is now more familiar abroad, and they associate it with thyme because that's often on the ingredient list. But za'atar itself is very different from thyme. It's much more closely related to the oregano plant. Um, So it's it's a condiment, but we also use the leaves. We use them fresh. We use them dried. We use them in pastries. We use them in teas. It's a very versatile herb. Um, And it definitely adds, you know, it packs a punch when you add it to dishes. For some people, it might be an acquired flavor. It is quite bitter, but it, like you were saying, it elevates flavors. Yes. And the acidity in it actually comes from sumac, which I think was one of the other ingredients yes. you mentioned. Yes. So sumac is basically the skin of a berry that grows on shrubs, and that skin tastes very acidic. Mm. It is one of the components of the za'atar blend that we discussed, but it's also used to flavor salad dressings, but predominantly one of the most recognized dishes with sumac is one called msakhan, which is a dish made with copious amounts of onions that have been flavored with sumac. And then there's chicken and bread as well. We're already learning and eating and learning and eating, and that's what I love about this show. If you've just tuned in, you're late. Reem Cassis is here. Her new runaway hit release the cookbook entitled The Arabesque Table, available on Amazon now, Contemporary Recipes from the Arab World, as she opens up the world of Arabic cooking to all of us in this absolutely beautiful form. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, there's so much more deliciousness in your radio. Don't go away.
back and we're dishing author and uh, extraordinarily passionate cook Reem Cassis is here, the Palestinian writer whose debut cookbook won multiple deserved awards. Born and raised in Jerusalem, Reem's newest cookbook just released entitled The Arabesque Table, embracing the past and celebrating the future as Arab cuisine elevates all of our palates. Reem, we left off, we were talking about ingredients. Now, now we have to cook. So <laughs> I found a bevy of recipes that I cannot wait to make in the book. And if you don't mind, could you please teach us, start with the sandwich from your childhood that inspired, right, your fried aubergine and tomato salad. I love anything eggplant, by the way. You and me both, Jamie. Yes. I love it as well. <laughs> So uh, when we were kids, my mother would often make ma'lube. Ma'lube is a dish made with rice and eggplants and meat, and it's inverted, and hence the name, which means upside down. But when she would fry the eggplants for that dish and we would get hungry before dinner is served, she would just stuff it inside a pita bread for us, and she would drizzle it with some tahini, some tomatoes, chili peppers, and a drizzle of lemon as well. Mm. And it is to this day probably my favorite sandwich. But if someone's coming over, it's you know it's not an easy sell to say, hey, here's a sandwich. I think you should eat that. <laughs> so I tried to turn it into something that's a bit more presentable for company, and that's how the salad that you're talking about was born. Yes. And the idea behind it is it's similar to most fakta dishes where you have bread that has been toasted. Okay. And then you top it with the fried eggplants and also the tomatoes and the chili. And then you drizzle it with the tahini sauce. Oh. And you eat it with a spoon and you get every one of those components in every bite. But it's much easier to manage and handle than it would, you know, having it stuffed in half a pita with tahini dribbling all over your clothes while you eat it. Yes. So. I think it's a wonderful dish to start with, Jane. I, I, th I think it's a, a wonderful place to start, like you said, but it really incorporates all those flavors that are so steeped in memory for you, and, and I love that, for sure. Uh, let's mm -hmm. talk maklube, please, because it's one of the recipes oh, yeah. I marked. The rice, chicken, and eggplant combines in one pan, and like you said, it's an upside-down, right? But it, uh, it has a, a visual of tadik to me. The, uh, yeah. Ah, okay. So I, I almost licked the page, Reem, because <laughs> Tadik is one of my most favorite things. Of course, I have memories uh, growing up. I had a dear friend as a child, and I was invited and always welcomed to dinner at their table. And the guest at the table always was uh, given the first offering of Tadik, right? The, the special mm -hmm. crispy right. rice from the bottom of the pot. So maklube, I, I can't wait to master. So the dish you see in the new book, it reminds you of tadig because it's a simplified and easier version of the traditional maklube. Yes. Which in that one, you layer meat at the bottom of the pot and then the vegetables and then the rice and the meat has been cooked previously so you can take its broth and it's an involved process. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book was make recipes that were still true to the origins and the flavors, but also more accessible for, you know, mothers like you and me who cannot spend five hours in the kitchen every day. Right. So I opted for store-bought chicken broth or ready-made chicken broth, Very chicken smart. breast instead yeah. of bone-in pieces. 
and rice goes at the bottom, and then the eggplant and the chicken are in the middle. So mm. when you cook it and you flip it over, it mm. definitely gives you the image of a tadig uh, rice. Yes. But the it's actually not as crispy as tadig. So what you see here, it's there's oil in it, there's broth, and that's what's holding those pieces of the rice together. But when you bite into them, it is a rich, oh. almost saucy rice that you're eating, not a crispy one. And I love them both. Very different, of but course. equally delicious. I would not say no to having Muva and Tadig <laughs> on the same table any day. Okay, well, if carbs you're... And carbs Yeah, right, thing. bring it on, right? <laughs> if you're making Maklube for dinner tonight, let me know, because I'll get on an airplane. That looks so Perfect. delicious <laughs> to me. Uh, if you're making garlic yogurt spaghetti, I'm in mm. on that one, too. What, what a beautiful combination of richness from the dairy and then the uh, carb impact of the pasta that that's that's really a, a really a beautifully inviting intriguing dish to me it's so funny you say that because I hesitated to put that dish in the book because it's like a lazy person's dish <laughs> and it's the kind of thing I might make if I really don't want to cook and it's so easy you just boil pasta and while it's cooking you mix the yogurt with some garlic and some salt and if you want um uh, uh, you know, some dried mint. And when the pasta comes out, you mix it all together, you add a splash of water. And it's, for me, one of the things I don't often like about creamy pastas is they're very heavy on the stomach. You yes. eat them and then you need a nap. <laughs> With this one, the yogurt is so light that you get the creamy texture, but you're still getting uh, you know, a little kick from the acidity in the yogurt. And it's actually, you feel fine after eating it. You don't feel super heavy mm. at all. Okay, and then we... the pine nuts are always crunch is wonderful wonderful. of course i think that's a lovely and and pine nuts having a softness texturally to them that's Mm -hmm. like the the that would be the perfect garnish to me Uh, i think that you might become even more famous for your lazy pasta now so be (laughs) be careful uh, the lazy pasta lady (laughs) the lazy pasta lady i can't wait to make that um inspired by spring and summer um, I mm. very much look forward to taking inspiration from your tomato salad with labneh and z- za'atar. And again, mm-hmm. this infusion of yogurt um, th- that we see all through the um, Arab cuisine and throughout your book, it, it really mm-hmm. has a very important place in the culture uh, and in the dishes. Mm-hmm. It does. And traditionally, that yogurt was made from sheep or goat's milk. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't often run into issues of lactose intolerance. It was easier to digest than cow's milk. But even with cow's milk, I mean, the labaneh that I make at home here in the U.S., it's just regular plain yogurt that has been strained. And then I add salt to it. And the labaneh drops that you see are just strained for maybe over 24 hours to get it to become really dry and firm. And then you can roll it into balls. And the really good thing about these Lebanon balls that I'm describing, Jamie, is you can put them in a jar with olive oil and they will last for a very long time. And you can take it out and spread it on a piece of toast. You can top your salads with it. It's very versatile and very easy to have and it lasts a long time. Can I make Mm -hmm. sumac and garlic dressing and just keep it in copious amounts in a mason jar and say your name every time I dress a salad? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do that. It's, It's so good. It's complements the acidity of the lemon. You know, dressings often are uh, a vin- a, an oil with some kind of acidic base, like a vinegar or lemon, but sumac adds that acidity it, with a certain sweetness to it. Um, I do make that dressing, and I do make a lot of it, but because it has garlic in it, 
if you're going to keep it in the fridge, I would only add the garlic to the salad before you serve it. Garlic doesn't sit very well in dressings. Right. But you can absolutely put the sumac, the olive oil, and the lemon, mix them together in a big jar, leave it in your fridge, and oh, nice. when you're mixing your salad together, add the garlic to the salad like you would any other vegetable. Okay. Dinner tonight, Reem. I can't wait. Can I come um, over? Yes, please. Would you? <laughs> I'd love it. Um, would you leave us with a tomato tahini bread salad? That just seems so perfect for the season as well. And I love that you took what is thought of, you know, a, Italian rooted in a bread with a bread salad made or created Americanized. I do a cornbread bread salad, right? I mean, you can do it with oh, anything. Really? Oh, yes. So good. Grill the cornbread. It's fabulous. But now I'm going to take mine to the next level with your inspiration and that tahini and the creaminess from the dressing has to be fabulous. It's a perfect salad to end on, Jamie. The only thing I would say is do make the salad in the summer when the tomatoes are very good because they are the predominant flavor. If you're going to use winter tomatoes, which are very watery and heavy on the seeds, it won't taste the same. Okay. But it's wonderful because you have the soft, sweet tomatoes that sit a little bit with the bread and the tahina sauce. So you still have a crunch from the toasted bread, but the juices that run from the salad Mm. make it, it Mm. doesn't feel dry, even though it's crunchy. The book is uh, absolutely so deeply rooted with passion and talent. And I can feel your heart poured onto the pages. So congratulations and kudos to you. Another really beautiful honoring of your roots and a celebration of recipes that you have generously shared. And so we thank you. This is a one of a kind collection of contemporary recipes tracing the rich history of Arab cuisine. Please don't miss it. Uh, Get your copy and just throw yourself into it because I cannot wait to cook from the Arabesque table. Available on Amazon now, just released. Of course, you should follow Reem's uh, daily culinary escapades on social. You'll find her at reem.cassis, R-E-E-M dot K-A-S-S-I-S. There is lots more fabulous food in your radio. We do have great culinary thinkers here, don't you think? Reem, such a pleasure. Come back soon, please, and stay well. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, you thank you. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Be right back. Taking a walk on the sweeter side today, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, Bakers Rejoice. This book might be the only cookbook you will ever need. Featuring 10 base cakes, 15 toppings, and dozens of decorating ideas, Simple Cake, just released and written by Odette Williams, is all you need to keep your friends and family in cake. Wait till you see this book. It is an absolute beautiful inspiration. Odette is an Australian expat and baking fanatic who now calls Brooklyn home. And after becoming a mommy, she realized she couldn't find any keepsake apron sets for her young little ones to don when they bake together. So she made some herself. And in 2013, 
her eponymous brand was launched. She has continued to bake to her family's delight and to all of ours now. And she is here to highlight her wonderfully uncomplicated approach to cake. And I'm very glad to have you. Hi, Odette. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Congratulations. This book is like your third baby, right? A labor of love. (laughs) (laughs) It really is my third baby. Yes. And I say it did more damage to my body than my third children. (laughs) Okay. So so much for a lead-in on cake. Uh, But uh, please share your love of cake because you do say these aren't overly sweet overly difficult recipes and I agree with you if you're going to have cake or indulge in cake it should be really good cake yeah and I think I mean I've always always adored simple homemade cakes and I think when I was like a kid growing up in Australia there was never anything sweet to eat in the house and so I became very crafty with how I would make a cake batter up for myself and then either bake a cake or sometimes I would just eat the batter. But (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't even get around to baking My kind of girl. Oh, you're true sad. But but, I really think that the cakes that really shine and the cakes that you can kind of have in your life every day are the really simple ones. Yes. They're not the super decadent ones. They're the ones that not take up too much of your time to make. But they're really like simple flavors and they're the kind of cakes that, honestly are kind of good enough that you don't necessarily need a topping you know you don't need to do that extra leg of doing buttercream or you know other things that add more time to the bake um i agree that brings me to some of the advice you share from a home baker at the beginning of simple cake Um, Mm -hmm. i love that you say drop the cake you don't mean Mm -hmm. you don't mean literally but this is a very worthwhile reminder lesson you know it's one of those Simple little details and tips that I give in the book that can make like a big difference in that if you just drop the cake once it's in the pan and before it goes in the oven, what it does is it just kind of gets rid of all those rogue air bubbles that can be there that, you know, will then affect the bake. And it just also gets into all the nooks and crannies of, say, uh, a pan that has like crevices um, so it's just a great little tip, and it just I just kind of once I'm just about to put the cake in the oven, I just give it a little couple of inches off the kitchen counter. I just mm-hmm. give it a little drop a couple of times, and then pop it in. Yeah, very smart. And then you alluded to uh, old cake, although it doesn't mm-hmm. last long. I love how <laughs> you revive old cake. You know, I grew up. My mother didn't always make the cake from scratch, albeit she did. But toasted mm-hmm. pound cake, even if it was store bought that went into a pan and got caramelized and buttery Mm. and warm, Mm -hmm. you didn't care where the cake came from. It was (laughs) just so delicious. (laughs) I'm so with you because honestly, like when you've got cake and say it's just, you know, a day or two and it's got a little, a little stale, like it's not done yet. Like you just put a couple of knobs of butter into like a fry pan on a soft heat and you like brown that butter and then you just, pop that slice of cake in there and turn it. I mean, it's, it's glorious. It's like so lovely. You can put a scoop of ice cream on it. You can mm. just have it with a morning coffee. It's like one of my favorites. Thank you for sharing your passion, Odette. I could talk cake all day with you, um, but uh, I will just cook from the book or bake rather mm. from the book. Um, 
very happily. You should be very proud. Uh, this book oh. is so thoughtful and very inspiring, and it is a beautiful, fresh take on cakes that I think will make so many enthusiastic about baking. So thank you for sharing your passion. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, thank it's, you very it's much. a pleasure to introduce the book uh, to food lovers everywhere as it has just released. And you should get it now, really. I mean it. It's called Simple Cake by Odette Williams. And it is a beautifully nostalgic ode to the joy of homemade cake. You will love it. Follow Odette at Odette Williams on social and go to odettewilliams.com so that you can learn more about her culinary adventures by the book as well, available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Odette, let's bake cake again soon together. I'd love it. I'd love that too. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation, if I may say myself. I hope that you enjoyed the culinary commentary, and that you'll tune in every weekend. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, as I like to call it. Before your favorite apples disappear with this winter weather, you should really make applesauce and put it up, as they say, jar it and capture the flavor of the season so we can finally move on to spring. It cannot come soon enough, right? You find your preferred sweet apple variety at the farmer's market or your local grocery store. You buy about four pounds. If you prefer a tart apple, by the way, you'll need to add a bit of sugar, but I like the healthy option. And then you use your pressure cooker or your instant pot, and you will have apple goodness in about 15 minutes. I make pressure cooker ginger applesauce, and I think it's sublime. And here's what you do. You put a half a cup of water or apple juice into your pressure cooker. You slice large chunks of apple around the core and discard the cores and toss the apples into the pressure cooker. And for four pounds of apples, I add four tablespoons of coarsely chopped crystallized ginger. And I like the juice of half a lemon. And you choose high pressure and set it to cook for five minutes because by the time it comes up to pressure and cooks, which takes 15 minutes probably total, you carefully remove the lid after a quick pressure release and you stir or use your immersion blender to puree. And you have a homemade ginger applesauce that is so delicious spooned over vanilla ice cream or into your morning oatmeal. It is really scrumptious. I will share my pressure cooker ginger applesauce recipe on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. <laughs>